Miss Macintosh, my darling. Chapter 42.3, the last part. In the East, one never fished a friend. <laughs> In the East, one never wished a friend good night without hastily adding good morning to indicate that one hoped he would survive the incalculable dangers, the journeys of the night, the long night, the hazards encountered in the night, as he had remembered then and upon his few subsequent visits. When one said good night, not to act good morning would be a sign of enmity among the Arabs, so that he had always said when leaving her, good night and good morning. Indeed, these were his last words to Cousin Hannah, doubtless before the everlasting night began. Might there be once more, Mr. Spitzer thought, the city, its golden towers and spires flashing as some old oboist played a few notes for the morning. Ah, yes, might there be resurrection and eternal life. She had been startled when, hearing his velvet footfalls, she lifted her great hood and saw him as perhaps her last visitor. A light flashed in her cavernous eyes, though her face did not change its rigid, rigid expression, for her features were frozen by pain or age into one great grimace, as near to laughter as to sorrow, these emotions being perhaps no longer distinguishable and perhaps of no importance, all values changing. Perhaps, perhaps happiness would be sorrow over there, or sorrow would be happiness, or they would be the same. How could Mr. Spitzer know? Surely her eyes had flashed at that last hour with recognition of him, Mr. Spitzer, though there was certainly no way for him then or later to know whether she thought he was himself or his dead brother, he could play his last fate. It was so near the end, and her reaction never would be known. She'd carry into her grave what would always be for Mr. Spitzer a tantalizing enigma. Might it not always be asked which one had died? Oh, how he wished that she had told him the great secret. Oh, how he wished that she had told him what spirit she saw gleaming beyond that great facial mystery, which was perhaps his own, his double, perhaps his double and eternity like a light shining through a cloud. Doubtless it was too much to expect that she should be concerned with him. It is possible that death, like love, makes for drawing into a narrow house before the spirit flees or fails. Yet by his faithfulness that he had returned until at last he had found her, dying and broken and old, her consciousness burning low, soon to depart this life, she should have known that he was Joaquin, his old watcher of all dying stars, that it was he who came with messages of love or hope. He who had returned in spite of all those years in which she had ignored him, she being in this propensity not alone. Her profile seemed to him like that of some old patriarch, so rugged, long-nosed, sharp-chinned, with great declivities, greater crags than he had remembered, greater caverns, and in fact it occurred to him that in any other place he might not have recognized her. If he had seen her on the alien star, he might have passed her by, or if he had met her in the desert or in a distant city where the traffic roared. He was by nature absent-minded. He would not have known him snowfall or a rainstorm, most particularly as his own eyes were almost blinded. For what was the individual to him who had lived beyond all pretty concerns of mine and thine, and here and there, and then and now, and had long ago seen the individual fading like a shadow, when the light appears as like the light before the sweep of the advancing darkness? All things seemed tentative and nothing substantial as this great gentleman. For this reason, the ideal morality from his point of view would be that which would it would conclude the body. He would sooner let the spirit go if there must be a choice. He would sooner be like some great many-doored, many-windowed, vacant, untenanted house, waiting for the spirit to return, perhaps sensing that it had returned at some point when he did not know it, perhaps when he was sleeping. Perhaps it was the lacking off, 
Tall's windows were broken, all doors were open to rain, wind, sun, great monsoons, and rolling their stockings tied like whispering. He guarded not against the peregrine spirit crossing his threshold. Though confused as to himself, yet surely there was no one so expert as he in conducting a dying soul on its last journey, which he likened to a voyage. No one who had gone so far out with that dim sail under the eye moon, shining through a cloud, and yet had returned. No one who had enjoyed his own great experience or greater in that realm which lay between two worlds, one never to be visited except by the living, one never to be visited except by the dead voyager. It was some time now before, in that vague whiteness of Coven Hannah's death chamber, which surely no man had ever visited before, for surely he was the first to penetrate that secret citadel, as he was perhaps also the last, his mind warming with old winds, old voices, old melodies, which were never uttered on earth, and of which he knew he must be careful, subjecting each to his close scrutiny, knowing his echoic heart, which had so often betrayed him by impossible substitutes. Old seashell music whispering and old tides returning with old wreckage, though they were never known to return as they had been. Waves scraping a bone or clutch upon a lonely strand. He knew the patches of various muted colors as where a lizard might have summed itself upon a rock, a white curtain blowing with long, slow undulations on the desert wind. But perhaps this wind was only the wind of his elusive memory, which had so often betrayed him. He had been too often seduced out of his wits. He had been too often blown athwart when there was no cause, when all was silence and stillness. Surely, too, all great climaxes were coming together now in this dim room, and there were many warring elements, many precipitations, many rainstorms and hailstorms and snowstorms, snowfalls, cloudbursts, flashes of lightning scrawling across the clouds, illuminations of things unknowable, many snow-topped mountain peaks stretching in long chains as the air grew thinner and colder. Many polarities reversing themselves. Perhaps the ice was melting now. Perhaps she was slipping into outer darkness as the cordages broke and could not see as the dark waters rose. And it was he who had come this long distance. He whom she had already believed to be of the darkness. He who was this great lamp bearer with his big lamp light dimming, dimly gleaming like that revealed by shifting sands. He who accompanied her as far as man might go into that other realm. Perhaps she was alone, as must be every voyager in this frail boat for his body. Perhaps it was he who was in darkness, having only a blind man's memory of night, just as his might be only a deaf man's memory of sound, a dead man's memory of life. Perhaps he was the blind lighthouse keeper, the blind engineer, the blind railway signalman of the crossing, the blind architect, the blind portrait painter, the deaf bell ringer in these tides. A sorrowful idea had often occurred to him, contributing to his melancholy. He often, like, he often likened himself even then to that star which, though brightly shining, sees not its own light. He was that butterfly which sought the shadows. He was that little gatekeeper who did not know which gates he kept. He was the edge of darkness, but did not know upon which side the darkness was. Perhaps the darkness enfolded him. Perhaps if she could not go forward into time, she lived backward, and the hourglass of her heart was beating with their speed and like his. Sands and stars moved in another way. He had seen these changes before. Perhaps all moments were coming together now, fused in one great glass of retort, there might be re and there might be retrieved that love which time had lost, and there might be delivered that letter which dropped into a slot thousands of years ago. And yet it seemed to him that there was no return, no return of the living or of the dead. 
It was some time before, with his eyes blurred, he saw the crossed sabers like smoky light beams gleaming through northern clouds above a row of army tent beds and recognized this was no great beauty he had come to discover, no beauty hidden by that great mask of clay. But this was a living skeleton, and she was doubtless dying of an old soldier who had stormed the last barricade, an old captain of the horse, an old army legend, an old army general, who had suffered greater wounds than this last wound she suffered. For it was the one that she believed would not be remembered by her. Nor would it be remembered on which side she had perished, so often at the last moment one changed one's mind, so often one died on neutral ground. She had been a little surprised, however, to see in this bare and windy place a dim-eyed marble Aphrodite, where the white curtains blew, seeming to him like a jewel which had strayed out of its setting, and it occurred to him that wherever there was a jewel, that was its setting and not to be questioned by him, certainly not then. He had said nothing for some time, daring not announce himself, not knowing how to make his presence known. It seemed to him that it would scarcely be appropriate to leave his calling card in both she and he were present. If there was a trumpeter who had gone before him, he had not heard the sound. He had not heard of even his own footsteps tapping on marble or velvet. He had maintained his silence, and she had stared with unbelieving grief at him, perhaps thinking he was an apparition, but he was most certainly was not. He was not an imaginary visitor. He was almost certain himself, according to the definition of that changing moment. He was almost certain, though she gave him no reassurance. He was reassured that he lived, particularly by contrast with one he had believed was soon to be leveled as dust to crystal dust, her breath rasping like the sound of the great chains, her eyes congealed by freezing clouds and winter winds, and the clouds seemed to come from within, and there was an avalanche and snowflakes firing through the rift in the country ceiling, and he could see the glacial formations of one who stared from within another spirit. He had been tactful as usual, however, just as she, even at that last moment which would have made no difference to her, and not tactful. But her she did not agree, or she did not greet him, either then or later, or call out his name acknowledgement of a great mistake, in tribute to his triumph over her in shadow valleys. Truly, her indifference had seemed boundless, not limited by life, this feeble spark. He had sat by that repeat bedside, drawing out his black, black handkerchief with which to mop his face, sweating cold dew as he smelled the ashes of roses, thinking, why did she leave him in the darkness? Why was she unable to concentrate upon that illumination he brought to her, telling who he was on either side of the great starry abyss? She had clutched at faded bedclothes, turning and turning her head, crying out, seeming to be living in some moment of remote past, her face frozen by unchanging grief, the snow upon her cheek, her mountainous brow, so that he could see the snow would never melt, for the great icebergs were filling its swarms and clouds. Perhaps his great golden boat had sunk long before the birth of the world, and there was only this wreckage. He had shaken his black handkerchief in the air with a whistling sound like an old explorer's mournful cry, feeling that he should claim this great continent stretching now before him through infinite desolation of snow and ice and clouds, is an unknown peninsula. And why not? Was he not the great explorer of desolate mountain peaks, looming through miles of clouds and frozen bays like eyes or something moons, and shadowed valleys no one had ever crossed before, albeit his only skiff was a butterfly in a storm cloud? Perhaps he lived suddenly only because she would soon be dead. Perhaps he lived suddenly only because she would so soon be dead. The longer this known world, there being no coordination and no ultimate harmony of all these lost effects and secret hours. 
It was she who finally escaped, he had no doubt, and go where he could not. His feet were too big for the narrow passage, thin threads of light reaching among the clouds. His heart beat low and numbness saved him from the last surprise as he felt the sinking of a star through endless waters. So that he could not be all that he would have been to her when she was dying, could not declare himself to the silent ear, the closing eye, the starry eye, the staring eye. It had always been his great problem that he could not make himself known. She had always fought against the spirit of man, and yet had she escaped, being a lady pale as the moon-spotted snow-cloud? Or if she had escaped before now, then had she escaped this last hour, beyond the last, when she was emaciated and old, broken by life like someone his brother might have loved, and when she was facing greater enigmas than any she had ever known, and when certainly she needed the man of strength and rarity to protect her against these dashing elements, lizards, whirlwinds, hailstones, great shrouds of snow blowing in her path. Did she not need a brave companion to conduct her through the everlasting darkness, never to abandon her until she had come to port, perhaps by an alien star or the star which had been strange? Would that it could be Mr. Spitzer, but he was one, and so very uncertain of himself, and his faint thoughts which he could scarcely muster at the climax, he having passed long ago beyond the climax, he having lived into these dying years, minuscule years of this galaxy. His reason failed him most when he needed it most, and she was wild, frightening him so that he was at a loss as to what to think, say, feel, how to conduct himself. Had he not loved always only a beautiful face? Perhaps his usual turpid overcame him. What should a man say when he came to bid goodbye to one who had believed that he was buried years ago, but never by the falling snow, he believed, never by Robin Redbreast covering him with the autumn leaf? For no one but himself had seen his burial. His grief was so diffused through clouds, winds, waters, that it was this grief which gave him sympathy and doubt for all living things, and identified him with all others. It's this which caused him to sympathize even with her. Would that the world could be young again, slow as a cup of a flower, that stars could be like spores falling through clouds and not upon a barren place. Perhaps the starlight spotted his sleeve, yet she did not see him. She was like all flirtatious ladies, not faithful to one who had never been her love, or so it seemed to him. That as he had never loved her, she had not been restrained by faith. In that which never was. He had been no other's love or image, but she had not known him, had not recognized him like an invisible presence in that room, or if so, had given no sign. It might have been a dark cloud through which there were shown no stars. So that he would lose her as he found her, far and lost. For how unstable that great lady was in all her ways, how foolish, vain, tempestuous, and predictable. Going in two ways at once, coming according to no known schedule or routine, taking all men by surprise and shattering their most precious certitudes, violating their cherished beliefs, and always acting not only against the human law, but the divine law in every country, even when that law changed from border to border putting from war to war as someone else might flit from spa to spa under her great white umbrella, battling no one but swans, seen now, seen none again for years, seen in the darkness or at dawn, seen first here, then there, sinking beneath the flood, then rising, forgotten, then remembered, believed dead, then reappearing just when the last memory of her had faded from men's hearts and minds, or had burned so low that they had ignored the possibility of another return. Astral voices or glass prisms shaking the wind in halls of mirrors had not always announced her coming. Flames burning low had not always announced her going. Seldom had she been at home. She had tented but for a night and then had moved on through deserts and clouded mountains, 
Now he heard her labored breathing and knew that she was weak, perhaps unable to defend herself against last assault and death, and she came out with loud armies, but came like a thief in the night. Came like silken whispers of faded skirts tangled with sequin, like snow or foam upon the wind, like old loves remembered and resurrected at this hour when all things were fading. Came like a voice whispering in the seashell, and so how fickle, how irresponsible this great lady was when she was dying, no different from others. And how should she be exalted at the hour when she was lowered? Hers was the same fate which others suffered. Even an old suffered storm king was unreliable of heart, fickle and death as in love, it seemed to him. He could not count on her, for hers was the secretly feminine heart, perhaps beating through all things even now, causing pulsing of clouds, shining of stars in distant heaven, sudden veering through desert sands, shiftings of clouds and winds, changing of roads and fog. Mountains, cloud dust, snowstorms breaking over the leaden woods, alpine and Andean peaks burning the celestial fire of Reuben's heart. What mad dance was life, and what madder dance was death, this whirligig of leaves and stars? Who escorted this lost lady now? he asked, there in that dim room, where these great obstacles formed like whirling mountain peaks, like endless clouds streaked by rays of dim radiance. And where were all those gallant ladies who once had loved this dying king, whose essential mystery he felt would never be completely revealed? For who should light the taper of this life that was waning and had already waned? It seemed to him ironical that the great bearded buccaneer of suffrage should be forgotten by those she had rescued from desert dungeons and mountain towers and valleys and dead kings, that no one blew the bugle now for her awakening, for that revelry which should be hers when heaven opened like a door, she being that ivory door. That door through which she walked, trailing her clouds of glory like the dead moon, huntress moon with her dogs. Strange that it should be an old sentimentalist like himself, returning after years of emptiness, to find out the secret hiding place of this old captain of hearts and darts. Snow upon her forehead, upon her shriveled cheeks, upon her colorless lips, upon her withered limbs like a last benediction to one who had mustered angels, and they might fight against the sensual sprites ascending into Christian paradise. Beyond these fields of Astrodal gleaming like thin veils of stars. But where was now her armor of virtue? And where was her lordly helmet? And where was the strength of the snow maiden seeming to fade as he watched? He saw between himself and nothingness the disillusion of this great mask of life, asking, Should not death veil all beauties, both dark and fair? Should not all be as brides going to the bridegroom, cold as mountain snow? Where was the heart of the mystery? he asked. Here, where white curtains blew around him with their long signs, and where he had thought that he might find the heart of the rose or the mystery beyond the cherubim gleaming through clouds. Where was the reality beyond the apparition? Perhaps the secret casket contained a vapor and not a dream. Perhaps it contained a cloud and not a moon. Perhaps there was no answer but the void calling to the void, the darkness to the darkness. Perhaps hers was an empty boat, the spent sail. He did not wish to imply, of course, that there were not still a few Promethean sparks of life in her, suddenly repeat flames when a light had gone, no doubt, out of his own pale eyes. Doubtless she could still get out of bed and serve and protect herself, since she permitted no inequality, no servants from the house, neither black nor white, not even a chestnut. No slave might wait on the grave abolitionists, who had fought against confederacies and crazy black amours arising like chimney pots through clouds and eunuchs, black and white and candle bearers lighting the darkness, and great white roosters with their red combs burning in clouds, and attentive mandarins of Peking, and the scenes with their lonely cries starting up from the spiraling into burning clouds, 
I built with minuet investments in jasper domes and desert cities with singing walls. Perhaps there were servants of whom we did not know, weary foot sergeants and orderlies, their voices whispering among the shrouds and cords. Perhaps there was some great monster of a perpetual servitude. She could walk by leaning upon her crutch with her old army cup thrown over a crippled body, no doubt when he was gone. Though she was always a beggar and wander, when he came in his dark cloak to be the ruins of the years, what havoc time had wrought or what havoc time had not wrought, when he came to the whispering tent dilated by the sky music, like a wind blowing between two stars, so that it was his dubious privilege to be present during her, her hallucination, for she would cry out and Mr. Spitzer came, Oh, is there no pavilion to hide me from the storm? Shall I not be hidden from men's eyes?